This is the ball of Tiger Woods. Lanny, what about this? Or, this is extremely difficult. This is one of the toughest pitches on the entire place here. Well, here it comes. Oh, my goodness. to uh, Swing Thoughts, the uh, only coaching mental performance program that is going to make you uh, a better golfer, it's going to make you uh, shoot lower scores, and more importantly, uh, stop hating yourself. That's the key point right there. That's the key. Tim O'Connor, mental performance coach for Clublink, all-around excellent uh, writer and friend. Uh, I'm Howard Glassman, humble Howard, uh, legendary uh, radio broadcaster and uh, mentally pardon <laughs> and mentally deficient golfer uh, let me just try and stop this thing hang on a second I can't even get it to open anymore you gotta okay. give yourself more credit than that oh yeah mentally deficient Come I am on. mentally I'm like a lot of golfers man it took me a long time to grow up why is that why are I think golf is uh, kept me Immature, longer than I needed to be. <laughs> what is it about golfers that we're there? Is really, it really brings out your inner child. Yes, your inner bad child. Your worst, best sides of your personality and your worst sides. Why is it so re- revealing the game of golf? I think that's just it. You're naked out there. It doesn't matter whether you're the the uh, the male boy or the CEO. You're totally naked out there in terms of like your ability. And if you, you know, lay the sod over it or hit it a couple times out of the bunker. Um, there's no hiding. No, there's there's not. Everyone's just there and you're exposed, man. Especially the way you react. I wonder, it would be interesting. Where Today we're going to talk about uh, Tiger Woods. You talk about someone who spent a lifetime being mentally tough, probably tougher than anyone's ever played the game, and then because of some personal circumstances, for the first time in his life, he was exposed, as you just said, but in a way, away from the golf course, and we'll uh, pause it or pose it. I can't remember. I never pronounced that correctly. We will ask the question. We will pose the question. Pose. Pause it the question. Pause it. Uh, Pause it. The idea that that he was finally revealed, and it did, in fact, affect his game. Absolutely, it did. Our guest uh, today, Lauren Rubenstein, a world-famous golf writer, uh, much like my friend Tim O'Connor, 
uh, and recently um, had a chance to sit down with Tiger Woods for an extensive interview for Time Magazine. The story was picked up uh, all around the world, and our friend Lauren Rubenstein will join us in a few minutes' time to talk about the interview and and what he felt and what he's gleaned uh, from that interview with Tiger and also what he thinks about the arc of Tiger's career. I'm curious to get your opinion, though. Do you think if you look at the arc of his particular particular um, advancing through amateur golf into professionals into winning majors, you know what do you see as sort of the arc of Tiger Woods in terms of his mental game? Tiger was always about the strongest player on the course, even when he was a kid. When he's six years old, he knows he can wax kids who are twelve years old. That is going to give you an unbelievable advantage, knowing that you've got more talent, you've put more time in, and you can just win at whatever level you're at. So he's coming at golf from, like, time he was a little kid, knowing he can wax everybody. Yeah, but knowing you have physical abilities, and then actually, uh, there's a, a phrase you often talk about when we're talking about my game, or we talk about it of, uh, in the terms of evidence. He, has, he acquired a lifetime of evidence. 100% that showed him he could execute under pressure. But that's a learned thing, is it not? That's putting in your time. That's just doing it. A lot of people talk about being able to turn on their golf game like you're turning a switch. You, you can't. You have to develop it. You have to have been in the moment when the pressure was on. You had to perform. There's all kinds of people around the green. Maybe a camera's on you. You have to be ready physiologically, mentally, everything. And you have to have gone through it. So and he did so many times, and he achieved. So he just built up layer upon layer of confidence. Right. So that his heart rate, other people would be jumping out of their chest. He'd be, he'd be chill. But that goes back to, you know, the legend of his dad, you know, uh, Green Beret, his mother, uh, uh, Thai sort of influence with uh, more of a Buddhist approach to life. And, and the fact that the kid was in... In the spotlight, when he was a kid, I should say, from the time he was two years old, he's on the Mike Douglas show, yep. hitting golf balls to, you know, being the best uh, junior in California to being the best in the country to being. But but that takes if you look at I, I want you to sort of talk about it from from the average person's, you know, approach to maybe improving their mental game, that it is a, a process it doesn't mean to take you a lifetime, but it is going to be something you need to invest in. You have to go and do it. You have to be under pressure. And that's what Tiger did. He was tournament tough. And the only way you become tournament tough is by playing in tournaments and putting yourself under pressure all the time, where it really counts. That's why people say when you play, always put some, something on it. You know, whether it's a quarter, you know, for the front nine or what, always have something on it to compete for. Because that's what Tiger was, the ultimate competitor. So back away from somebody who doesn't want to play tournaments, but they want to play better golf. They want to lower their scores. Um, and some of the things that we've talked about on our show here, Swing Thuds, uh, not completely sold on the name. But, um, but they need to build evidence of having sort of, uh, what's the word, triumphed in the face of pressure, whatever that pressure is. You know, they, they always have trouble, um, you know, hitting a certain type of sh- a chip. Well, until you've hit it a few times in the course of the game, you don't, you don't, you haven't built up any evidence that you can. Yeah. You have to have been able to have done it. Let's say, uh, you're coming down the stretch in, in a game and you're, it's like a 17th hole and you got this difficult pitch and you don't pull it off. Well, next time, 
you're going to feel more pressure. And until you finally do get over that hurdle and hit it, every time there's going to be some little niggling doubt in you. Until you can get past that... Then, Until you build up some evidence that ab- you can perform. Absolutely. So how does somebody do that? They, they, they're on the 17th hole of a, of a day. There is nothing on the line. And all they want to do is finish off the round. They feel like they've played pretty well, whatever that is. Doesn't matter what the number is. But there's a sense of the person on 17 that I'm, I'm playing pretty nicely today and I'd like to finish off and whatever number comes up. And they get this chip that always bugs them. So how do they prepare? What can they do practice-wise mentally? And what can they do practice-wise uh, physically to marry the two so that when they have that shot, they go, okay. When they practice, always practice with a consequence or keep a score. Never just hit chips just to see how close you can get. You can play all kinds of different games, but always practice so that you're chipping, trying to sink it or get it close. Or and you give yourself a challenge, you know, like absolutely. Like oftentimes, with if I'm practicing, I, I have two types of two phases of practice. I have a phase of, okay, I'm going to work on something technically block practice, and then as soon as I'm done that, I'm going to work on something to give me a game feel, which is I don't know. I'll take ten balls and I say to myself, I've got to get seven up and down, or I can't leave. Or yes. uh, I've got five balls left. I've got to sink one or I can't leave. And I'm going to tell you, you put something on the line. Pretty soon you start to focus on that ball better get close or go in or I can't get out. I, can't, I will not allow myself to leave. Now, not, not everyone's as ridiculous as I am, but I'm going to tell you, when you have that chip on 17 the next time, if you've put yourself in a game frame of mind, as Tiger Woods did all throughout his youth and his practice, then when you have that chip whenever it is under whatever circumstances as you say your heart rate is is um you're just you're calmer absolutely because you've gone through it you knew you survived everyone's hardest part about golf and all kinds of things is am i going to survive this they don't think it consciously but that's what they're worried about so if i chili dip this into the bunker am i going to look like a fool in front of all my friends and if that happens will i survive the humiliation exactly and am i a choker and all this this type of thing so putting yourself under pressure in practice it, getting your heart rate. A nice thing to do when you're when you're practicing your short game is to run on the spot. No kidding. You get your heart rate up, and then you try and putt and chip with your heart rate up. Are you serious? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great. I thought I thought I heard everything. You have to tell me. No. Apparently, I was wrong. Well, there's all kinds. That's of cool actually stuff. a great idea. Oh, it is because it gets your heart rate up because you feel some uh, excitement. Absolutely, and that's what happens to PGA Tour players. They're they. Don't kid yourself. People talk about Ernie. You know, he's got ice going through his veins. Are you kidding? No, they're all nervous. Absolutely. The, the putt is shaking in their hands, but they got they make the putts. People used to say this in Tiger's prime. Oh, my God, Tiger can hit shots that uh, no one else can. The announcers were like, you know, he'd have the two iron, and he'd be like hooking it around a tree, a high, you know, drop soft. And here's like what I used to say. on the green. Here's what I used to say. All those guys can hit those shots. They just can't hit it when it counts. There's nobody on that tour, uh, nobody's too much hyperbole, but very few professional golfers couldn't hit that shot that Tiger hit on 18 at Glen Abbey. I, I mean, maybe not 6-iron, but 5-iron, whatever it was. It was a 6. I know, but I'm saying they couldn't hit a 6-iron. Maybe, maybe for uh, some other pro, it was a 4-iron or a 5-iron. My point is, put them in practice, they could all hit that shot. Yep. But on the 18th hole, the 72nd hole of a tournament, with it on the line, none of them could except for him, and that's why. He was so great. Here's uh, one of the uh, more famous calls 
from uh, is it Gary Coke? Uh, is this players? Yeah, better than most. Gary Coke. Well, we're back at the 17th, and what a scene it is. Johnny, I have seen a number of players putt from the back part of this green, and the results have not been good. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Not a couple thoughts about that. That's the seventeenth at the tournament players course in Sawgrass and famous uh, call. You know, most human beings that have played the game, you could put them on that part of the green and one out of some theoretical number of times you might sink that putt. And even Tiger Woods. I mean, if he went, if he was just goofing around and sank it and then went back to try it again, he might not, might not sink it again for another 150 tries, whatever. It's just that some athletes have a, a sen- there's a sense of the moment. And that's what I think has also followed him around his whole life. Tiger had, and still has, the most incredible focus, I think, of any athlete, maybe... Maybe only Jack Nicholas ever came close. I wasn't around to watch Hogan on TV, but in terms they didn't have TV, <laughs> <laughs> and whatever they had there was black and white. But I don't think there's any player who gets lost in the moment of a shot, sure, like Tiger, completely committed, completely just lost, lost in it. Like there's times I there's a great DVD Tiger um, Tiger series uh, authorized DVD that, that I think you got to watch. It's there's amazing stuff in there about his approach to the game, and one was he talked about almost like blacking out on shots, almost like he's had, having an out of body experience. Yeah, I've heard him watching say that. himself do it, where he doesn't come back until the shot's over. Almost absolutely, he's totally lost it. He's letting his body totally do it, and very few people trust their. Everyone wants to be thinking something. Yeah, and, and you're and you're. That that's a road to bad golf. Well, and you've said this before. I think um, everyone wants to have think that everyone thinks they need to be thinking something because if they're not, they're not trying as hard as they should. Or <laughs> uh, I will say this, you know, Gary. I'm, we're going to call Lauren Rubenstein here in a second. Uh, I always thought that that famous better than most. Just from a, <laughs> I'm throw this out there. I know everyone thinks he's one of the great calls, but you know where he missed. A, I think the call could have been better. Want to know how? Because you go better than most. Everything, by the way, everything happens in threes. The, right. the, it's the perfect. It's just the perfect rhythm. Better than most. Better than most. And better than everybody. Because the point Ooh. is, it wasn't better than most. It was better than everybody who had ever hit that putt. Wow. And I always wondered, like, like I, and I, whenever I hear it, I think I always wait for him to say better than everybody. Because that would have been a nice little close to it. Thoughts. Uh, well, thank you for taking the spice out of one of the greatest calls ever. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for, <laughs> for putting, deconstructing it. Thank you for criticizing one of the greatest calls. I suppose you didn't like Vern Lundquist when Nicholas... Uh, uh, maybe. Uh, maybe. No, yeah, and then he goes, yes, sir. Absolutely. All right, we're going to call... Uh, the greatest one. Uh, one. My favorite, Nicholas uh, in 86 at the Masters. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, Lauren Rubenstein. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy Dire Straits. Everything. Double ball time You feel alright When you hear the music ring 
Pleasure uh, this morning to welcome one of uh, this planet's finest uh, golf writers, a uh, Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. Is that even remotely true? Uh, remotely else? true. It's either true or it's remotely true. Yeah, it's true. This gentleman uh, spent uh, many years uh, writing. Uh, he's the golf columnist for the uh, Globe and Mail, a uh, member of the Ontario. No, I'm not, not anymore. Was I'm, I'm I was 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 Formerly. a golf columnist. Uh, Hey, listen, I could also say once he was a four handicap, but that's in the past. Uh, Lauren Rubenstein's written more than a dozen books and is in the Ontario and Canadian Golf Halls of Fame, and he's with us this morning. Hello, sir. Hello, humble. How are you? Uh, I'm well. You know, Tim O'Connor, I'm not sure how much, how familiar Tim is with uh, our history, but we played a lot of golf together, Lauren and I, over many, many years, and both shared a love of uh, the game, and I learned a lot uh, listening to Lauren's stories as we would uh, walk, uh, you know, different fairways, and it's great to... I, I, I can't remember if last time you, we were on one of my shows, but it's great to have you on this one. Yeah, I think I was on with uh, was it you and Fred a few years ago. Yeah, we were doing, uh, we're, we're doing a show on SiriusXM. Uh, how long, Tim, how long have you uh, known Lauren? Are you a Lauren admirer, or are you jealous of him? Let's be honest. <laughs> I've known Lauren for, I don't know, since... I certainly read his stuff in the um, late 80s and, and uh, in the 90s, and I got to know him uh, in uh, I think, Lauren, you and I had a dinner in Augusta, Georgia in uh, oh, yeah? late 80s, and I was wanted to make a break from being a wire service guy to writing about golf, and you just said, do what you dream about. So you were. So are you saying Lauren Rubenstein would be, uh, say, Jack Nicholas? And were you um, Gary Player? Are you Phil Mickelson? Grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I would say Lauren. Uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about obviously this uh, big Tiger Woods interview you did uh, for Time Magazine, how it all came to be. But um, it's been a while since we played golf together. How much? Uh, and you were a very, very good player. How much uh, golf do you play these days? I don't play nearly as much as I used to, but I still get out once, twice a week. You know, I can go three or four weeks without playing, and then I'll play four times, you know, in in a week. Um, when we get down to Florida, I play a couple times a week, hit balls, that sort of thing, but not nearly as much as I used to. You know, I mean, quite a bit uh, older, obviously. we got four grandkids now on two different coasts in the U.S., uh, so, you know, other... Uh, there are other enjoyable aspects of life, and um, but I do still play, and I still really like getting out there. You know, you were one of those people like myself that was always uh, sort of experimenting and tinkering with their swing. And I remember once you telling me, like, because of the people you got to interview, you know, you would get a tip here or there from some of these people. And, but the people you got tips from were like Tom Watson on chipping or, you know, another tour player on this. Did, do, do you think that was a benefit to your game, or do you think it was uh, detrimental? Because, you know, if Tom Watson tells you to chip a certain way, you're going to go and try it. Yeah, it would have been a benefit if I had just stayed with one <laughs> one person's advice. For example, when I did the book with George Newton, you know, in uh, the late 80s, 88, that's, uh, you know, if I would have just stuck with, I really feel if I would have just stuck with any one approach, I would have been much better 
than going from one language, one golfing language to another to another. You know, I mean, it was as if, uh, so I got a mixture. I got a big jumble of different golfing languages. And uh, the best story about that, I guess, or that encapsulates it is I was up at the National, you know, one day where we played. And um, uh, Chuck Cook, who was Payne Stewart's teacher, was up there playing and, um, you know, I ran into him and uh, ended up playing with him. And I remember on the 14th tee, without my asking him any advice or anything, but he said, Lauren, he says, I know you haven't asked me anything, but said, with, with the shape of your swing, that's the word he used, with the shape of your swing, I wouldn't do anything but try to draw the ball. Okay, fine. Then a few years later, when I did the book with David Ledbetter, and I was down at a clinic of his at uh, Lake Nona in Florida, and he basically said, with the uh, shape of your swing, with the way it looks, Lauren, I wouldn't try to do anything but fade the ball. So I had two of the top teachers in the world telling me the exact opposite things. And in the middle, between the two of them, I've had every piece of advice possible. So I, I gave up my golf game for my readers. How's that? I sacrificed it for them. Well, Tim went through the same thing. I think uh, you did the book with Todd Graves, The Single Plane Golf Swing. And How's that working out, Tim? <laughs> he's, I'll tell you what. I played some golf with O'Connor, uh, Lauren. He hits, he's, uh, the shape of Tim's swing, he should just aim down the middle of the fairway. Um, well, I always thought Tim got the club in a great position at the top of the swing. Really, I did. I, whatever he was thinking about. I, I mean, I always admired uh, Tim, Tim's golf swing. Really, I did. Well, I was going to say, you can't help. When you do, a, whether uh, it's Lauren's book with Ledbetter or Tim's book, with uh, Todd Graves, the single uh, playing golf swing. It's got to be for golfers. It's hard not to immerse yourself in that method because you're writing about it. It's impossible. You're with the best players in the game. I mean, I did a book with Nick Price called The Swing, Mastering the Principles of the Game when he was the number one player in the world. Now, how are you not going to try things, you know, that he's suggesting or I'm out there in the range with him? You know, or some of the people I've gotten to play with, you know, Zokel and uh, David Hearn now. That's sort of, I mean, how are you not going to try things if you're susceptible? And that's just the way it is. And I've accepted it. That's my nature. And, you know, I think it's probably contributed to my writing at the same time. It's just, you know, pretty much uh, hurt my golf game. Now, O'Connor, did you improve with uh, your time with Todd Graves? You obviously tried the single plane swing. I got... Um I got much better in terms of uh, my misses weren't as dramatic. I was finding the fairway a little bit more. Um, Yeah, it really helped my backswing for sure. Through swing, I still found it difficult because I had years and years, decades of the regular swing. With with Todd's swing, I had to keep the feet on the ground because that's what Mo did. Right. I I can't do that. I I just can't do that. So I, I kind of have a hybrid of the single plane swing had a dress and back swing and they go the other way well i, I agree with yeah, you lauren brandle shambly brandle shambly's got a new book out coming out soon on you know what all of the top best players in the game have have in common and i just saw some photos the other day where he keys in on that tim and he basically huh. says that all of the best players in the in, in the game raise their you know their their left heel going back you know you can see it up in the air at the top of their backswing so well, I was going to say one thing. I, I, I played some golf with uh, Tim the last couple of summers, and um, he does put the club in a great position at the top of his swing. He does. What happens after that, I really have no idea. Um, Neither do I. Something, <laughs> something happens. Uh, I, will, I will say that Mr. Glassman there was always a very, very fine player. You know, power. Absolutely. Pretty, is. Good, pretty good control. Was you know, always definitely a, a class or two up in, uh, than I was. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've maintained your game at all or not, or not but I always thought you were a very good player. Well, thank yes, you, Lauren. I, uh, yes. I actually went away from the game. I stopped playing for about eight years. 
I left the I national. Remember that when you left the national. I left right? the national uh, and I came back to it three years ago. And I'll tell you, I enjoy the game more at uh, my age now. Uh, my handicap's uh, around one point something, so I've maintained. I've actually gotten better. Uh, over the Good last field. couple of summers. But uh, technology is allowed. I mean, you hear all older guys say this, but technology has allowed me. I hit the ball as far as I did when I was 37 to 45. I, I just do. Uh, but let's, I want to talk about one thing uh, as we transition to Tiger Woods. Um, I'm going to say that learning about the mental side of golf, it was definitely a, a thing that I needed to do. And one of my... I would say that the mo- the best example of somebody who had their mental shit together is p- I was playing in the club championship with Lauren Rubenstein. Oh. And uh, I often tell this story about you, Rube. Uh, do you know the one I'm going to tell? I'm afraid I do. <laughs> so we're playing the club championship. Somehow me and Lauren are paired together, and we're playing along. We played a lot of golf, and we get to the seventh hole at the National. And uh, Lauren was playing pretty well up to then, you know, maybe even par, one over after six. And on the seventh hole, I believe the number you took was 14 or 15. I think it was a 12, but whatever. Once you get up in that range, it doesn't matter. You know what? I think over the years, it's funny. You're right. It probably was 12, but I've told this story so many times. Now it's 16. But let's, let's go with 12. And Lauren leaves. No, I remember exactly how I did it, too, unfortunately. Well, we, every shot? I'm not sure we. Have. I, well, I pretty much. I hit it in the bunker right of the green, my second shot, and then I bladed it. Couple over the green into the forest, and then ah. it kind of went from there. It was like Kevin Na when he made it sixteen. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to say this though. I, I was I think I had your card and I didn't ask the number. You just quietly as we went from the seventh green to the eighth tee, you just quietly said the number. But that might the, re- the, re- the reason I always remember it is um, you never th- we never talked about it. All the way through the rest of the round, and we had to wait on the 15th hole, which is a par three. And like, this is like an hour and a half later, and out of nowhere, Rubenstein goes, fucking 12. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, wow, man, that's mental toughness. Because he held it in and said nothing about it for almost two hours. And I always admired that about you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it didn't, it, didn't leave, it didn't force me to leave the game anyway. But. Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I know at, at that time in my life, if I'd made 12 on 7, I would have just walked right to the parking lot. Let's talk about Tiger Woods. Uh, before we get to the interview you recently did for Time, um, what's been your impressions of him uh, in terms of his mental game? That's what our show is all about, mental toughness and how people cope with this game that we all love and hate. What's your impressions of him? Well, he's been incredibly, you know, obviously tough to win all of the majors he won and 79 PGA Tour events. But, uh, you know, one story, I guess, can um, can uh, tell that. When he won the U.S. Open in 2000 by 15 shots, he was telling me um, one of the things he was most proud of was on Saturday he made a triple. And I remember the triple he made. It was, I think, on the front nine. And, um, you know, kind of I think he fluffed a couple of shots around, you know, with the rough around the greens there. But he made a triple. And uh, it just fired him up. It, uh, you know, it just it didn't phase him. And he just said, okay, back to business here. And um, then he went ahead and he was leading by, I think, whatever he was leading by going in the last uh, 18, last round at Pebble, leading by eight shots. And um, you might remember, he, he, he said to himself, I mean, he pretty much knows he's going to win the tournament, obviously. But uh, he said to himself, I'm not making a bogey all day. That was his commitment to himself. He wasn't going to make a bogey all day at Pebble on on Sunday, and uh, he told me that when he got to the 16th hole, he said, I knew I was leading, but I, I really didn't know by how much. I mean, he knew it was by a fair amount, but still. And he hit, uh, he caught a flyer lie. He hit his tee shot into the rough, 
and he caught a flyer line. The pin was at the back of the green. I remember this, and you may as well. And he, he hit it over the green. Basically, he had no shot because it was down and deep rough. Pin was about, um, he short-sided himself effectively. He only had about 10, 12 feet of green to work with, and he had to make sure he got it on the green. Um, and he hit it, you know, he took this big swing, and he said he caught the ball, you know, he caught more of the ball than he thought he would, and it went about 18 feet past the hole. And then he buried the putt for par, and he was so excited. You might remember him turning to Stevie Williams, and he just gave some kind of a nod or gesture. He was so into that one shot. I mean, to me, it defined being in the present. I mean, Absolutely. when he talks about, when we talk about being in the present, some of us, we mean, yeah, you're into the hole or you're into the shot. I mean, he was into the present in almost, you know, a micro, uh, you know, a micro fashion, it just into just not making a bogey. And that meant he was going to try and hit the best putt he could. And then on eight, on 17, he hit it in the bunker, left of the green. He said, you know, it was a pretty easy shot and I almost hold it. So it wasn't, didn't even phase him. He's in the bunker. And on 18, he hit four iron off the tee um, because he wanted his commitment was to not making a bogey. After he made his par, he told me later some people and maybe in the media said to him, well, why don't you drive her off there and get to the green in two and, and break the uh, U.S. Open record? He said, I had no idea what the U.S. Open record was. I didn't care about the record. I wasn't thinking about it at all. I had made a commitment to myself not to make a bogey, and if that meant hitting four iron off of 18, you know, hitting you know whatever he hit up there and hitting a wedge in, then that's what he was going to do. So he really is capable, I think. I think the essence of mental tough to a degree is being um, setting a plan and being able to adjust. Somebody once told me about Jack Nicklaus. Tom Weisskopf told me he said that Jack Nicklaus has the presence of mind to make the right decisions at the critical times near the end of a tournament when everybody else is freaking out. And Tiger, we talked about that, and he agreed with it as well. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Lauren, was. Um like, how did you get this interview? <laughs> I've been writing about golf for a long time. You have. This was, for people who've read this interview in time, if you haven't read it, read it. It's the most open and intimate conversation I've ever seen anyone have with Tiger Woods, who's known for control of everything. You, Lauren. Well, he, that's a great point. He opened did, right did up. Did you to approach you. him? Did they approach you? Did Time Magazine say we want to do a, an article and Lauren's going to write it? What are the circumstances? I think I should start wearing a shirt or a T-shirt that says, "Here's how I got the interview with." Because <laughs> everybody, I've been on the BBC, I've been on Irish radio, you know, all kinds of radio shows and podcasts in the U.S. and Canada, and everybody, you know wants to know that that's for sure and well you know it wasn't very complicated at all um i knew that he was going to be coming up to his 40th birthday and a few months ago i approached uh, his people and i said um you know I, I asked if i could do a lengthy interview with tiger get some time with him uh and um you know we had a couple of conversations obviously but in the end what they decided was they knew that there were going to be a lot of articles coming up about tiger as he approaches 40 and uh, you know i know there are a few uh, there are obviously going to be a lot in the papers coming up soon and i know of, uh, at least one really big magazine article coming up um but they said just they said all of these articles are going to be based on speculation or where they're quoting tiger they're going to be quoting him out of press conferences or previous press conferences da 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 da, da. And they felt that there be, should be one article um, where he is speaking on his own behalf. And um, so that's how it came about. And then they agreed with me that would be I would be the writer to do that. And they gave me exclusive access to Tiger. And I asked for quite a bit of time. I asked for there to be no conditions because I said to them, if there are any conditions on the interview, 
then obviously there are certain subjects that are going to look conspicuous by their absence. Um, and they agreed. You know, they just agreed to, to everything, and it really it was no more complicated than that. It was so did you got injured? Did you sell it? Or, hmm? I'm sorry, Lauren. Did you sell it to Time, or had you always was Time always the place you were going to? Uh... No, we. I sold it to Time. You know, got a hold of Time, and um, decided on a Q and A format, which was great because that, to you know, to the maximum degree, would allow yeah. Tiger to speak on his own behalf and allow me to ask the questions that I wanted to ask. And I always, um, I always conceived of it as more a conversation than an interview in which we would talk about a lot of different subjects, just as we're doing here. You know, we'd, we'd leave some subjects, circle back on them, come up with some new subjects that maybe I hadn't thought of. Uh, um, and, and that's really just the way it went. On my voice recorder, it said two hours and 23 minutes. And, um, you, know, that's, you know, we obviously touched on a lot, and there's a lot uh, in the transcript, which took me about 16 hours to transcribe the two oh next days. Um, that you know that we I did we didn't use in the actual published transcript, but I think uh, I think the transcript really really reflects very well what we talked about over the course of the two and a half hours. Lauren, most people's impression of Tiger is what they've seen him on TV uh, between the ropes. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about the Tiger that you talked to and how he came across to you versus what people see as they say when Tiger's in his office? The tiger that I saw came across to me, you know, the same way that I've seen him in other unguarded moments. I remember way back in late 1996, I was invited along with 11 American writers to spend the day with Tiger down at uh, Bay Hill. He had just turned pro. He'd won a couple times already and secured his card for 97. Uh, and they felt that maybe some of the key journalists in the U.S. should get to know Tiger a little bit. He was just starting out embarking on his pro career. Um, and that he should get to know them, the people who he'd be dealing with over the years. So um, it, we spent a day with them, had, uh, as I recall, breakfast or lunch, and it, uh, um, he, he sort of, he, he was out on the range critiquing our nasty golf swings. Uh, <laughs> and, and we were, so that, you know, I saw him, you know, then he was only 21 years old. No, he was 20, hadn't, uh, just turning 20, around December of 96. So, um, but he was friendly, he was casual, he was laid back. And then, of course, in the last 20 years, um, you know, he became guarded, obviously, and protective of himself and his own time and was careful with what he said. Um, and uh, you didn't see him often in those unscripted moments. I did see him in a few. I had breakfast with him at Isleworth. Uh, me and John Paul Newport from the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago uh, for something we were doing. and It was actually a product he was introducing and invited one American writer, one Canadian writer. So we sat. But in that during that breakfast, we had the opportunity, and after the breakfast, to talk with them about other subjects as well. Um, and you know, I and one time at the British Open, I think it was '98, the one O'Meara one, anyway, uh, at Birkdale, I went out to the range late in the evening, and there was Tiger and Duval. There were only two out there, and the fans started asking them if they would start hitting different shots. So they were like a couple of kids. They started crisscrossing shots in the air. Tiger would say, okay, right to left. Duval would say left to right. 30 feet high, 20 feet high, whatever. And they they were putting on a show. It was fantastic to watch for the couple hundred people. I was there, Jaime Diaz, our our colleague, uh, Rick Riley, who was writing for Sports Illustrated at the time, was there. They were the only three out there, I think, writers. So I knew that there was a Tiger Woods beyond the one that the public saw. Um, And I always wondered to myself as a journalist, what is it like to be in Tiger Woods' shoes? Sure. Um, that was number one. Who knows what it's like to walk in his shoes? Number two, I felt as a golfer, a person who loves golf, 
that it was a privilege, really, to, yeah. to be writing about him at a time when he was doing what he did. I was at the 97 Masters. I was at the 2000 and 2005 Opens when he won by eight and five shots um, at, uh, at the old course. So, you know, I mean, it was tremendous watching the guy. And so it really didn't surprise me when I saw him in his own restaurant pretty laid back kidding around with staff you know talking football it was you know it didn't really surprise me at all to see the way that he was away from the cameras you might say um you know lauren it's funny for many many years i've been a huge tiger woods fan and a bit of an apologist uh not not so much to other golfers but a lot of outside of the game casual golf fans uh, often talk about Tiger and why does he have to be this way. In fact, my, my dad, my late father, used to say, you know, why can't Tiger Woods just be a little bit more gracious or a little bit more this or that? And I used to defend him by saying that, you know, no one knows what goes on in the head of a guy at that elite level of the sport. And, and however he conducts himself on the golf course, whether it's, you know, outbursts of profanity, whatever, uh, has served him well, you know, throughout his, you know, obviously historic career. My question, though, and is I always thought whoever advised him on his post-round interview style, I, I thought they made a, a bit of an error because he really is the worst interview in sport, in the sport uh, uh, arena. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, well, you know, I think he was ill-advised. Well, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure how much advice he got. I mean, he's, you know, probably got some. I'm sure he talks with all of his, his people, you know, his close circle about um, how he's going to handle certain things and how he wants to be. And he made the decision. I, I can tell you that in the era of social media, as oh, you yeah. guys know, um, and that's been most of his career, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, um, he's obviously decided, and a lot of golfers have decided, that they have to be very, very careful of what they say. They're always, you're always thinking, I imagine, I'm just speculating here, Okay, now how is this going to play if they take this out of context? Yeah, I see that. Just yeah. You know what I mean? And I think you can get so careful and so guarded. And I see it myself just in the, you know, 35, 40 years I've written about the game. I can see how not only Tiger, but more and more players have become more and more guarded because that's how they're thinking. You know, well, I'd like to say this, but if it's taken out of context, it's going to really look ridiculous. Okay, and you well, see another walks of life too. So let's get yeah, to. I saw you know, and the, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. It never really bothered me that much with Tiger or any other player because um, I always liked being a, as a columnist. I mean, I could be out in the golf course watching them, and I felt the truth of who they were right. was more in 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 the way they were on the golf course than what they said later. Because those sound bites with the Golf Channel or NBC or whatever after are always just they just seem stilted and unnatural. Let's talk a little bit about. We only got about uh, seven or eight more minutes. So I want to get your thoughts a little bit about the interview. The big question I think that you spoke to him about was. You know, where are you now? Will you ever come back and play? And is that even important to you anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important to him. You know, if you look at one, uh, you know, there are a few times during the interview where he repeats that I definitely want to get out and play. I think he uses the term with all my heart. I don't want that to happen. In other words, he doesn't want to have to stop playing. But if it does because of his back injury um, and the pain he has suffered there in his lower back, then he's reconciled to it. He's older now. He's got these two kids, um, you know, who are six and eight and wants to be able to spend time with them. So he's, it's definitely a more um, reflective Tiger than we saw six or seven or eight years ago. Um, and so, yeah, he definitely wants to come back, but he only wants to come back if he can play without, you know, pain relatively. He knows he's going to be 40 and he's going to have aches and pains, as he said, but 
the pain in his back that he's been having and the kind of golf swing he's been trying to make to get around that pain and then in his leg as well, the knee, um, having to make the adjustments over the years. Um, you know, he just doesn't want to play through that pain anymore because it'll put him on the ground and, you know, yeah. he won't be able to hang around with his kids, that sort of a thing. So, he, uh, you know, but he definitely wants to come back. I mean, some people took from his Tuesday press conference in the Bahamas that he was glum and didn't want to play and that, and, you know, that, that, that was, it was a bit of an atmosphere like that, but. I had talked to him a couple of weeks before, and uh, I got no indication that he has any interest in doing anything but rehabbing to the fullest when he's capable of it and then seeing where that puts him. Lauren, one of the things that um, this show is, a key piece of this show is to help people get better in their own game. And, you know, people, Tiger's been the guy to watch, and it's been really interesting. So Tiger's been known for having probably the strongest mental game in the history of the game, maybe better or on a par at least with Jack Nicklaus. But... Tiger, you know, how many times did he switch his swing? Uh, he was just so into into the mechanics of it, and guys like Shambly and different critics said that, you know, really, why should Tiger, who's someone so kinesthetically gifted as Tiger, why would he be immersing himself in these changes? So, Lauren, what's your sense on, on how Tiger, you know, what he did with his mechanics and trying to get so much better? A lot of people think he just went into the dumper because of that. Well, that's their view, yeah. I mean, we didn't talk in great detail about, you know, his golf swing or what he was trying to do, but my impression has always been that, uh, and I got that sense from our interview as well, that he's made a lot of these adjustments to account for his injuries, really. You know, he couldn't snap his left leg as much as he wanted to anymore, so he even had back to try in the to find a way days? to... Even the back when he recalibrated his swing? Well, you know, he just didn't, you know, he's, he's a creative guy. Like, he was telling me he loves... He's, you know, you guys know this. He loves links golf more than anything because he can hit all kinds of different shots, hit the ball around the ground, that sort of a thing. And um, you know, he's really not a mechanical player. I remember reading, I remember looking at his book, How I Play Golf, years ago, and he talks there, as I recall, about you know a fairly standard ball position. And I remember once, um, you know, uh, seeing him play, and uh, I saw him moving the ball around his ball position all over the place. And he was asked about that. I forget who asked it, but anyway, he was asked about that. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get out in the golf course, though, he said, you got to adjust the circumstances and hit the shot you want to hit and put the ball where you want to hit. So, you know, he's really, it looks like he's really mechanically inclined, um, and he's, that's the way he talks, but he's always hitting all kinds of different shots. The fact that he could adjust and play the kind of golf required on a hard, fast link yeah. and then play a soft golf course and hit the ball way up in the air, yeah, I mean, I think speaks to that. So, um, you know, I mean, the guy won 14 majors. I can't imagine. You know, my question is, how many would he have won? How many more tournaments? It's hard to. You just don't know. Had he not been injured, he's been playing with injuries for 20 years. Absolutely. No, and, 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 and you know, the thing about him versus Nicholas, I mean, you can speculate, and I, th- I actually think there's probably. Uh, you know, there's probably a book in comparing, you know, why could Nicholas last and win this many tournaments over this many years versus Tiger? A large part of it is what you just touched on. Nicholas had a fairly simple action that didn't change over time. What changed with Nicholas was his physical being. He was a big, fat guy, and then he wasn't. But in terms of his actual golf swing, it was pretty consistent, and he didn't play as much golf as Tiger would have had to over the course of the same number of years. And as you just said, you know, Tiger's been hurt and making adjustments for a long time and still won 79 tournaments and 14 majors. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, his first major surgery was back in 1994 when they removed a couple of cysts, benign cysts from around his knee. And, uh, you know, he told me they sliced up his knee really, really bad. So 1994, it's a couple of years before he turns pro, and he was, what, 18 years old. So right right going back then, he had issues, and uh, he's been having multiple surgeries ever since and had to play around him. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's had stretches, of course, of playing pain-free and in really good shape, but you know, mostly he's had to deal with some sort of an injury. And, um, you know, the story is still to be told, if he ever wants to tell it, about why he made all of those changes in a deep, deep way. And I'll tell you what, the guy is fun to talk to about the game and about the swing. I mean, you're talking to a guy who, uh, you know, really thinks about it very, very deeply. I mean, and uh, that, that's his thing. He's into, he's into the science, but he's also into the creative part of it. And, you know, as a golfer, I mean, you know, that was fun for me to, to listen to. Lauren, he was also probably the most competitive golfer to ever tee it up. Like, he just didn't go in to, you know, win the hardware, as he talked about, or just, you know, to be present to a shot. He talked about he wanted to kick everybody's butt, and so they knew they'd been, they'd been kicked. Speak to that yeah, level that of competition, interview. that level of competition, uh, briefly, if you can. Yeah, no, he definitely wants to do that. He talked about that when he was 11 years old, how he wanted to do that. That just came from way back then that, um, you know, he just wanted to go out and, as you say, you know, kick the butt of everybody that he was playing against. And while he's giving advice now when asked to friends, particularly Jason Day and Rory McIlroy, he's talked to all of these guys, Fowler, Ricky Fowler, plays golf with up in the medalist. Um, but, you know, I could tell, you know, that he wants to get back out there and be in contention on the back nine of a major and just thrash them. Deal He's it. kind of craving that. Well, That's let's, a really let's... good. He told me this didn't make it in the interview. He told me, he, you know, that old phrase about you want the ball, the last shot. Right. He says, I crave, he craves that. He says, I, he says, be, ha- having the most pressure, this is the way he put it, something like this. Having the most pressure on you is the most fun. Is that a gift, or can you train yourself? I don't know. Having the most pressure on you is the most fun. That's what I want. I want it to be on me. I don't want to win the tournament because somebody else messed up. Do you think, so in closing, I'm going to let you go, do you think that will ever happen for him again? I think there's a chance it'll happen. I think it could happen. Um if he gets himself healthy. If he doesn't get himself healthy and he can't prepare, I mean, it's a preparation thing. If he can't prepare, then he knows at 40 years old um, and being injured, he can't just go sort of tee it up in a major and expect to to win, really. He's got to be able to prepare the way he wants to, and that's intensively. Well, listen, my friend, drive safely. I know you're on your way to uh, winter, away from this uh, this hellish place where it's like 10 degrees today. <laughs> um, but uh, I recommend everyone go and read the uh, Lauren Rubenstein interview, and I hope that we uh, get a chance to talk to you again because it's always fascinating. Okay, you bet. Good talking to you guys. Thanks, Lauren. That's Lauren. Yeah. He's a good boy. All right. Yeah, he's got a, you know, it would be so much better to have him in here in person because he's got a million stories. We can just do Lauren Rubenstein and just have him tell you, like... Start talking. <laughs> yeah, cool stories about hanging in the locker room. He's, I, I can't remember this Tom Watson story once. He, just, and the thing about Lauren is um, he reminds me of a guy uh, that I know who covered a lot of rock stars. It's almost like it's sort of very a matter of fact. 
Actually, another friend of mine is the uh, movie critic for uh, Canada AM, Richard Krauss. And Richard's met, you know, every top star you can think of, whether it's Tom Cruise or whoever. And the way he talks about him is just so matter of fact. And I remember Lauren telling me a story about, yeah, I was in the locker room talking to Watson, and Watson didn't like the way I was holding my thing with my chipping. And I was like, what? What? Wait a second. Slow down. <laughs> Slow down a second. What, Tom Watson was showing you how to chip? That's pretty cool. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it must have happened to you. You've covered golf for a long time. Well, what happens is after a while as a journalist, I was actually a music critic as well, and I got to meet a lot of cool people. And after a while, whether they're in sports or in music or movies or even politics, they're, they're really just people. And Sure. So to have, like, I remember one of the, coolest interviews I did like I remember meeting Larry Mize you know who won, who won the Masters with that dramatic chip in against Greg Norman I always loved the rhythm of his swing yeah and I remember just having this opportunity with him uh, US Open at Baltus Raw and um, I just said God I love your swing <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it's just the rhythm is amazing he goes yeah well sometimes it gets too slow yeah it's funny <laughs> um, thought, is that possible you know it's got a, a a sort of Larry Mize style uh, swing now on the PGA Tour is this kid, Chris Kirk. Have you seen him? He, he, he takes it back so slow. Now, he's a great golfer, but it's uh, it's not the sort of modern lashing at the ball that you see yeah. from like Dustin Johnson. And I, I watched a tournament last week. I was watching Bubba Watson. I have no idea how he hits the ball. I really don't. <laughs> like you, I, you don't teach Bubba's action. Yeah, that action. It's just so weird. I was watching him in slow motion. I'm like... I don't even know what he's doing. Tiger, you know, Lauren talked about Tiger being creative, and he absolutely was. But really, I think probably the most creative, one of the most creative golfers ever is Bubba. I don't even think he knows what he's doing. No. He just kind of sees the shot, and he just gets over, and the magic happens. Well, I will but say, I, but I do think, I do think that he's got magic hands. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm so sick of hearing golf broadcasters say that. I just want to poke myself in the face. Like I watched the, the oh, tournament. Oh, I'm glad I added to not your you, page. Not you. Not you. Oh. But it's just every, every they're doing the on the golf thing. Every time they go to him in this tournament that he won last week, it's just always talking about how creative. So just find something new to say about Bubba Watson, like how dumb he is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, yeah, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Let's talk about Tiger uh, briefly here before we finish up. You know, my uh, one of my favorite things that Lauren. Well, two things. You talk about meeting Larry Mize. Like, that story about Lauren at Bay Hill hitting balls in front of Tiger Woods. I don't know how you'd do that. Like, I'd freeze up. Uh, but my favorite part of that, not my favorite part, but one of the things I took away is, remember when he's talking about Tiger Woods at Pebble Beach? Yep. Hitting four iron off the 18th tee? I hope somebody listening with an 18 handicap got that. Because here's the best player on the planet at the time. And because he decided he wanted to make absolutely sure that he made no worse than five in that hole, he hit four iron off the tee. Are you kidding me? What? So there's a great lesson for the higher handicap. Like That's, that's got to tell you everything you need to know um, about a commitment to a process. It's what, yeah, it's, and a lot of it's what Lauren talked about, preparation. And I don't know that anybody more than Jack or Tiger prepared better. Tiger set the intention that what he was going to do for the day. So, so right going in, he wakes up that day. He knows what he wants to do. Yeah, and then he has that stretch where he, makes, he doesn't want to make any more bogeys. That just 
it was like a, he was a guided missile. Nothing was going to take him away from that. So all his decisions are based from that well documented plan from a place of intention Absol- and process absolutely so he knows so he doesn't get up on the tee and go well what about this nope no he's operating from a plan that's just it's so embedded in him that leads to more just calmness and just being well just extrapolate being totally that present to take that doing. to a 15 handicap like if you're a 15 handicap and you're on the 18th hole at Pebble Beach and uh, you want to have as low a score as you can, I guarantee you're not thinking I should take out a hybrid or a, a, a three wood even. You're getting up going, it's Pebble Beach, I'm hitting driver into the water. Well, that's, that's your ego. So and it depends on why you play the game. Some people play the game because they, they want to they have fun with their buddies, see that I can hit it far, farther than him. Uh, how can I do with this challenge? That's great. But if, you're, if your objective is to go as low as you can, it's all about you want to shoot the lowest you can, then you have to take yourself out of that place of ego, who you're going to impress. Uh, if you hit it farther than your buddy, that you hit driver on a tough hole. No, it's about the smart shot. It's about being able to just make a decision that I'm going to do what's going to going to give me the greatest chance of hitting this on terra firma mm-hmm. and advance it and you know that, that's what it's about i'm glad to, that you say that you, you know years ago i was there was this whole i think everyone's had this experience this whole at the course i was playing at with lauren drums. um what's that drums are you drumming yeah accidentally okay. that's fine i want to do it again so we can hear it okay oh that, no, that's um, crappy note so better. I had this hole that for, you know, everyone's had it at their home course. I think it happens. So, you know, you find a hole where for that summer, it just, for some reason, you get up to it and you just hit, you know, a bad tee shot or, you know, whatever it is. It just gets gets in in your your helmet. Exactly. So I had this hole and it was a shortish par force, you know, close to 400 yards. And I didn't need to hit. Pardon? I'm listening. Didn't need to hit driver. I, in fact, never hit driver, but I hit three wood, and I continually pull hooked whatever I hit off that tee into the trees left of the fairway to the point where I finally got so sick of it, so sick of being in some trouble off the tee that I started teeing off with a – I started to try two iron – the same thing. I was starting to tee off after a while with a four or five iron because I said to myself, I can hit this onto the, I need to hit something onto the fairway so I have a chance to hit the screen. I don't care what it is. And I, you know, my buddies make fun of me a little bit, but I didn't care. Absolutely. I just knew that I wasn't going to miss this fairway. I don't care what it took. But that, it took a summer of hitting left continually on this hole. I don't know why that is. A lot of it is just getting... That happens to every golfer. They have a hole that gets into the helmet or a certain course that they can't play, or even against a certain guy or, or, or you know, playing partner. It's being able to get to, to a place in your game where you can just stand there and feel a little bit more at peace and that you're, that you're not tensing up, your breath isn't short, your mind isn't just getting ahead of you. It's just being able to find that place of little bit more peace and calm. So for you on that hole, going down to four and five iron and finally, okay, I'm not going to miss with a five iron. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a great play. And so you just start finding that place of, of more calm and just, and just gradually you build evidence and you get confidence and you can start to ratchet up and, and maybe work back towards hitting driver eventually on that hole. Um, ask Coach Tim. We've got about four or five minutes left and, and maybe I, 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 was gonna, I wanted to talk to you about fatigue late and around but I actually want to stay with this. You know, one of the things that 
Lauren said, and I would ask you, Coach Tim, mental performance coach, um, club link, uh, is the point about Nicholas and, and Tiger being mentally present, but the idea that Weisskopf said about Nicholas, that he had the ability to basically, paraphrasing, to keep his head when all others were losing theirs. Nicholas's whole thing was, I'm, I'm comfortable in these situations, and I know that eventually everyone will, you know, shit the bed. Because that's what a lot of his competitors did. How does the average person get themselves in a place? And maybe you talked about it a touch on already, but talk about it some more about, you know, knowing that, okay, if I'm a person that wants to score well, here are the things I'm going to have to be prepared to do in this round. One thing would be to dismiss the idea of score altogether. Okay. Do not think of score. If you can set your attention wider... And what I mean by that is a lot of it is getting just being in touch with the players you're playing with. Be a great partner with them. Have a sense of gratitude that you're on the golf course and you're able to play this wonderful game. If you can do those types of things and get the, get outside yourself, then you don't become as you don't grind as much. You're not focused. So on you're in a better. You're in a better physical, mental state. Absolutely. But now go one level further, which is okay. I, I'm doing those things. I'm feeling good about how I am showing up in this group. I'm enjoying the day, but I've I've set the intention that I want to um, mine the lowest score I can on every hole. Now I need to be prepared on some holes to do some things. I mean, not go for the green in two, or not, or make sure that if I get in trouble, I always get out of trouble. I mean, there are some things the amateur golfer can do that that will turn his triples into bogeys, and and I want you to talk a little bit about those. Because yes, you're in a good. Once you're in a good mental state, then you've decided you've got to stick to decisions so that when they come up, you go, oh, I, I know what I'll do in this in this situation. A lot of it is being immersed in process, and it's just committing yourself around those things you can control. You can't control score. Yes, indeed. Your overall objective is to shoot as low as you can. That's fine. But you don't shoot low scores by thinking about scores. You think about being present to, say, your process. Right. And that's something you can control. You can't control score. People think they can, but so, for example... What a really great thing to do, and I offer this as um, one of the best tools I know of. When you keep score, score your process. So f- for, for sake of example, say you just want to make sure that before every shot, you stand behind the ball and you visualize the shot and you take a, a deep breath before you go into your shot. If you commit to those two things and keep score on how well you did on every hole, if you can control that So that's something you can control. You can control your process, but you can't control score. So the ironic thing is, is that if you get better at your process, round after round after round, your scores come down. That's a great thought. I love that. Um, I think, too, that, you know, for for an average golfer, even a good player, that wherever you are in your round, I think you should, and maybe you would comment quickly on this, Assess whatever you have in front of you based on, you know, the fact that now you're mentally present and you're in a good space. You're not grinding. You're not freaking out about, you know, how you feel about that day. But assess assess the shot. Assess it based on 
being present in that moment. Here's a great example. You're, you're, you're beside the green in two, and you're a 15 handicapper, and you've got a, a close pin, and you think, maybe I should lob this and see how close I, should, I can get it. But the fact is, you don't have that skill. You don't have that shot. And if I were caddying for you, I'd say, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's just make a nice, easy pitch shot to a spot that's 15 or 25 feet past the flag. Because then I can guarantee you we can make bogey from here. But if you try and open up the club like you saw on TV, but you've never really practiced and you're not very confident about it, you're going to scull it into the bunker, and now we're making seven. Yep. And I think that's when, when you're being mentally present, you can make a de- you're in a calm spot where you can make that decision. Think about it realistically versus what you always talk about. The, the guy's ego is uh, mad because he's missed the green and he's already six over after three yep. and all those things that don't allow you to look at the shot and go, you know, realistically, I could probably get this on the green. Absolutely. There's two. There's a couple key things about playing golf, particularly under self-imposed pressure, like you talk about. One is making really good decisions when that's and that's an intellectual process using your your conscious mind. The other is to listen to your body. So if you line up over a shot that you're not comfortable with, and you just really think, how do I feel here? Mm-hmm. What's going on in my body? Your body will tell you whether you can hit that shot or not. Because if you're like, if you've not. You don't have the flop shot in your bag. If you really tune into what's going on in your body, your body's going to say, no. We don't have this we shot. We don't have this shot. Step back. But all those ego things, all that stuff about how am I going to look, or you know, is it going to look like I'm a, a, ba- uh, you know, a pussy for not trying this shot, or you know, i got to get up and down. I, you know, I'm already, all those things have nothing to do with that moment in time where you can assess your ability on the spot. And I think the calmer you get yourself or the, the more you work on the presence of the process of being present, the more you'll be able to look at that shot and go, well, realistically, I don't think I can get this close. Yeah. And it doesn't, a lot of it is we're concerned how we look. Sure. And that others are going to make judgments about us. They can make smart remarks. Well, so what? It's a, it's, you're playing for you. And if you know what you can do, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It's like, you know, high school, for God's sakes. You know? We all failed high school. Yeah, it's about it's about you, what you're comfortable with, not what everyone else is uh, is thinking about you, because you don't have control. How's that for coming around? There you go. You can't control. No one's got I'm... any control. That's it. I barely have control <laughs> of this. <laughs> of this. I was going to say my bladder. All right. Uh, Tim O'Connor is the uh, mental performance coach for um, Club, Link Club Link Academy. Club Link Academy. Uh, you can get a hold of him on uh, line. I'm uh, the mental performance coach for my dog. Uh, we'll see you next time.